A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and co-writer and co-creator of Parkdale Haunt and commercial audio director Alex Nersal. Although CGI to enhance or provide a special effect to a live-action film truly had its breakout in the 90s with movies like Terminator 2 in 1991 and Jurassic Park in 1993, the early 2000s is where, for better or for worse, you really got to see CGI go for a spin. 2002 is the year of the Scorpion King and the absolutely wild take on The Rock's face. And alternately, it's where the world of the future was interpreted by Spielberg and lots of whooshing screens in Minority Report, which honestly, mostly still looks great. Now, today, we're going to look at two creature features that heavily rely on CGI. But before we do that, what makes CGI look real slash believable, and how should it be used to tell stories? Now, Alex, you work in an auditory medium, but I have uh, some ideas that you know what a good story should be and how to tell that. Do you have thoughts on this? I, I do. I have thoughts on how, I mean, I know I work in audio, so my that's my, that's my medium, but um, I think that especially when it comes to CGI, um, I mean, there's always that sort of maxim that like the best CGI is the stuff you don't notice, is the stuff that you like don't even pay attention to. But it's so, it's just in everything now. And good CGI is the a thing that can be used to make movies expansive in a way that like practical practical effects, as much as I like them, just don't. I mean, mm-hmm. like you think about backgrounds, you think about like these sets that would never be able to be done in uh, in a practical or in a matte painting or something. Um, and same with creature effects, like gore effects, um, all kinds of things of like people in space, all this stuff. Like I'm like special effects and visual effects have their place and they could be used beautifully. And when they're used great, it's it's not that you don't notice them. It's that it just feels seamless. And when you do notice them, it's the rocks, weird, spooky, early 2000s, <laughs> uh, not enough polygons face coming at you. <laughs> we don't talk about that face nearly enough. Um, my my partner and I are currently watching the new new Diablo Four, and I'm like, we are watching and playing. Uh, but in the cinematics, it's like mm. they haven't figured out eyelashes yet. Oh, like eyelashes sure. are clearly a very complicated rendering process that we need to deal with, and you don't think about how complicated. Mm-hmm. faces are let alone creatures and like you know like i know a big complaint about the early um final fantasy movie <laughs> was that it, they didn't breathe I mean, and people found that so uncanny valley the guy yeah. voiced by alec baldwin but he looks like ben affleck oh <laughs> why did they make him look like ben affleck <laughs> between that and the oh, yeah, Jimmy man true, where he's true. just like <laughs> <laughs> Well, when it comes to creatures, I I still very much have a soft spot for uh, the puppetry smoothed Mm, by CGI, which is why Jurassic Park still looks amazing, and Jurassic World is not going to age fantastically. It's such a it's such a fine line, and like you know, I think I think the Mandalorian is a really good example of like something where a practical effect and a puppet works Mm. super well. It's like I've watched that show, and I've spent the entire show going, "Look at the puppet!" Every time, like every time Grogu comes on on camera. And like, I know, like, it's obviously a mixture of like CGI and puppetry and you know, it's a puppet. It looks like Mm. a stuffed animal sometimes, but 
I think that that physicality, having their having that weight there, really makes a difference. And then I think a bad example of that is something like um, the end fight from Black Panther, oh, the yeah. first one, in which you have this like this fight where it's so rubbery and everyone's like bouncing around like action figures, and it just it looks rough. And I I and my main thing is I've worked in post for so long that I, I very, very rarely ever hold this to the yeah. artists. This is a lot of the times it's budget, it's timelines, crunch is incredibly real. So when I see rough special effects, minus like discounting things like age and technological abilities at the time, like, you know, if it's the early 2000s, I'm not expecting photorealism, it's fine. Um, but... I know that like lots of times it comes back to like the amount of work that was put on the mm -hmm. artists to get all of this done super cheap, super fast, make it look perfect. And if it doesn't, the business will go under and then it goes under anyways, because you lowballed on yeah. the, you had to lowball. Yeah, totally. I, I think that that's a lot of the difference between the, even the movies we're talking about today. Like, I mean, I even just heard in the behind the scenes, like Cherry Jones talking about in signs, they did a table read and it's like, even then she's like, it's crazy that we got to like, <laughs> practice <laughs> which is like jesus yeah, right? uh, and then yeah just knowing the <laughs> development like when you talk about jurassic park that's a movie that like threw away an entire stream of development of stop motion because they were like i think cgi is good enough and you can look up stop motion dino tests for jurassic park so it's like yeah there just used to be such care and such breathing room with these movies like i'm sure reign of fire took yeah. years to make uh, even though it's a stupid yeah. movie that most people have forgotten it's, about. Yeah. Oh, it's, and those people are wrong, and I'm bringing it back like I'm bringing back the shadow. Um, I think the other thing people don't realize, and this is such a, a wild thing, is especially this is, wasn't happening as much in 2002, but it's definitely happening now. It's something to take into consideration. They release trailers with mm. CGI that isn't done. Mm. So for some reason, like they are, they're doing that because you have to promote movies so far in advance, and you have to get keep the hype going, and you. Um, Basically, you need to have a trailer for mm -hmm. your trailer and then a trailer for your trailer for your trailer. Like, it's just a series of things. So people start criticizing the movie before it even comes out, and you have the idea of what that thing is going to look like in your head before you see the actual movie, but that expectation's already set up. It doesn't—it's not like, oh, that looks better than I remember. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, no, these are going to suck. So you already have that in your head. Um, and the other thing, too, is that when people watch these movies in the, like, test audiences, often whole mm -hmm. segments aren't done. And then you will literally just watch a screen and go, oh, and this is the part where the thing catches fire. This happens. Just use your imagination, yeah. people. It's going to look great. And it's like, how do you develop movies like that? Like, with asking people to use their imagination in that way when you are supposed to have a special effect. It's very weird for storytelling. I love a previs. Mm. I love pre-seeing. I love seeing <laughs> previs stuff. I love seeing mock-ups. I love seeing wireframes and getting all this stuff. I Like, it's... it's uh, it's very, you know, I know it's very how the sausage is made. And, uh, but I, I get such joy when I would, I, I did briefly work in as a producer in video post. Um, and, uh, and I remember one time working on a thing and we got a previs, it was a short film and we got a previs version and we were doing the set, we were doing this, the, the VFX. So there's this moment where these two guys are like, Oh no, look up in the sky. And then like two JPEGs <laughs> of like a drone are like, are just like, <laughs> like coming down, like unmoving JPEGs. And the first time I saw it, I had to like stop myself from laughing because everyone else is taking mm. it deeply seriously. And I was like, yeah. this is great. I love this. Like, I know obviously <laughs> no it'll change, but like, it's yeah. very funny. <laughs> yeah. Man, 10 out of 10. Perfect. <laughs> 
Just yeah. leave it. We'll submit this. They won't be able to yeah. tell the difference. And then I and then and then uh, they get the opposite version, which is um that trailer for uh Tom Cruise's The Mummy oh, yeah. that released with like one audio mm. track in it and like everything else wasn't exported. And you just hear um Tom Cruise's same scream <laughs> over and over again, which like I kept losing my mind at. <laughs> and that whole thanks the yeah. whole dark universe series that actually sounded like it was gonna be kind of cool. But that movie no. was not good. <laughs> the, the trailer, the trailer wasn't the problem. <laughs> But we'll get to that another day. But for now, let's get into our first movie. So is there a creature more fascinating than the dragon? Appearing in folklore all over the world, these scaled beasts have captured the imaginations for centuries. But there's a reason we don't see a lot of dragons in movie history before the advent of CGI. They're really, really hard to make convincing. For every Pete's dragon and Vermithax pejorative, there's a cue the winged serpent and dragon heart. Now, Dragonheart was the first kick at the can for a CGI dragon in a feature film, and the series is beloved. There are five movies and counting, but the Liam Neeson-voiced dragon, not so realistic looking. Now, along comes 2002's Reign of Fire, and this is the movie that will define the CGI dragon until even today, but it didn't get the sequels I personally feel it so richly deserves. (laughs) What happened? Let's find out. Okay, Alex, let's give people a little idea of what Reign of Fire is about. Reign of Fire takes place in a post-Brexit England in which... (laughs) 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 Reign of Fire is a movie about uh, baby Christian Bale... uh, His mother and her crew of subway workers accidentally stumble across a dragon underneath London, which causes the dragon to wake up and then him and his buddies go and basically nuke the earth, leaving baby Christian Bale to turn into adult Christian Bale, where he lives in a castle with a bunch of adorable children and Gerard Butler. And from there, they have to survive and also try to stop the dragons from continuing to nuke them and anyone else. Eventually, Matthew McConaughey shows up in his Maybe one of his most scene-chewingest roles ever. Um, Oh, he's having a gay old time. He is the person who knows what movie he's in. And they team up along with the lady from uh, GoldenEye Mm -hmm. to stop the only male dragon in what I would would like to deem the most misandrous movie ever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. No, it's uh, they do have to stop the only male dragon because dragons are like salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's how they breed. But not like Jurassic Park, where they can switch sexes. No. no. Or like, or not like um, Godzilla, where they're just like, oh no, it's there's like one lady and she's mm. laid a billion eggs or whatever But then it was. they have to be fertilized. Can someone please explain basic physiology and biology to Kay. these people? No, <laughs> dragons are like salmon. Yeah. They just they lay a bunch of eggs and the dude just flies over them. <laughs> And you know what? I am okay with that. Suspension of disbelief. As long as Matthew McConaughey is, spoiler alert, hurtling himself into the mouth of this thing as it's breathing fire while screaming with an axe. If you have not seen this movie, people, please go watch this movie immediately. It is very readily available and it is a really good time. The noise I made when he did that, I wish I'd recorded it and you could have just played it underneath this. I was so happy. I was so happy. I just was like... Just thrilled to watch this man 
a greased up, bald, bearded, tattooed Matthew McConaughey shirtless jumping through the air with a big giant Gimli axe <laughs> sailing straight into a dragon's mouth. <laughs> and I was like, God, I never knew I needed this. And you do. Everybody needs this movie. Now, I showed this to my husband because he'd never seen it before. And he was like, I heard this really sucks. Like, that's why I didn't go. <laughs> is that the reviews were so bad. And they were so bad at the time. He's like, I heard the dragon sucked. I heard it was just boring. I didn't. And I was like, have you not seen this? And he watched it. And he's like, this is amazing. And I would have watched this a million times in theaters. And I'm like, yep. Pretty much. Yeah. So, Cam, what happened that critics just savaged this? Um, I mean, I think uh, something Alex brought up uh, while we were talking. I think it's uh, it's just very serious. It's a very serious and procedural film. <laughs> it is a film <laughs> very much about killing this dragon that they set up, uh, which is a bit weird. Um and I don't think, like, I don't know that there's a lot wrong with it. It's also, we're talking about people like Christian Bale, Gerard Butler, and Matthew McConaughey. All of them were actors, but none of them were quite what we know now. Uh, none of them were, all, like, a huge draw, I would say, necessarily. Probably McConaughey is the closest. And even he is, like, a rom-com Well, he's guy. doing rom-coms. Yeah, this yeah. is between Failure to Launch and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yeah. Or, sorry, uh, uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days in the Wedding Planner. Yeah. Yeah. But he's also doing Bill Paxton's Frailty, which we were considering doing, which is, if you haven't yeah, seen that, it's a awesome. Great, and great it's, film, yeah, for sure. And it's a great performance by McConaughey. Yeah, so it's kind of like a weird, uh, weird one. It's also, it, I mean, it's coming out in the middle of the summer. Uh, and we were still kind of in the era of choked with blockbusters, you know, Men in Black 2. Uh, I know it got beat by Road to Perdition, which is not exactly a blockbuster, but, you know, cool. Tom Hanks is a bad guy. Um, I think, yeah, I think Austin Powers might have still been around at that time or just coming out. It, it was just a crowded summer. I think I'm a little less hot on this film than you guys, but it is fun. <laughs> and it does seem like if you came wanting, you know, it's the same as like... I can't remember. I guess Olympus has fallen. Speaking of Gerard Butler, uh, <laughs> it's like another dumbly. You're like, why is this movie so serious? Uh, um, it's so yeah. serious. You're the only person who remembers Olympus has fallen. Cam, <laughs> it's, there, there are three films and and I believe an upcoming TV series. What? Yes. God. Uh, Set in France, uh, France has fallen. We live in a dumb timeline. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> good for Gerard Butler though. He's working. He's making it happen. Good for Just him. Just because a movie is pro drone strikes on civilians doesn't mean. <laughs> no. I don't know if I like the butler response. Okay, so this is something we were talking about before the show happens, is, or before we started the show, was that, so Gerard Butler, this is a very, very early uh, role for him. Uh, I recommend people go back and listen to our Dracula 2000 episode, which mm. is super fun. Uh, and we talk about, a lot about like how they tried to make Gerard Butler a thing for a very long time as a leading man. And sometimes it just happens. Like Sam Worthington, they wanted Sam Worthington to be thrust upon us so badly, and it just didn't happen. Um, but I feel like this movie is exactly exactly how you cast Gerard Butler. Like, he is, like, the wisecracking uh, buddy to Christian Bale. Pretty's one and only black label. Aged two weeks in a steel battle. Now the secret's swallowing fast. That way it just burns your stomach and not your throat. I feel like he is a good foil to Christian Bale because they're both, like, broody, grumpy, but he's, like, a little more playful than Christian Bale is. And he's, like, the only guy who can, like, really look at him and be like, okay, dude, just lighten up, mm -hmm. you know? Um, I love that opening bit where they're reenacting Star Wars for the kids. Like, I like there are, like, these moments of levity of, like, okay, you're in this terrible world, but how do you keep going? 
And I think that's what I like about this is that Bowman talk. Uh, Rob Bowman is the director for this. We'll get into him in a bit. But he w- really just wanted to focus on the humanity and then layer really cool action action on top of it. And I I think that's exactly what he does. Like it's a really like I, I buy these characters. I buy these are people that are hungry and tired and they look hungry and tired. Yeah, I've seen a lot of terrible movies in my time. <laughs> I have seen a shocking amount to the point where I have a full-on Excel spreadsheet to keep track of them. Wow. And So you never watch one again? Is oh, that why? I, I've seen Cats five times. <laughs> every time I every time it takes another year off my life. Yeah. Um, it's funny because when, as soon as you mentioned that, my I realized that when I was watching that movie, I've seen a lot of terrible action movies. I love action movies and I've seen a lot of bad ones. And I, there was never a moment in this movie in which I had that feeling where I disliked the characters, where I was like, these people are unbelievable. I don't like them. They're, they're like weird stereotypes or just tropes of people or whatever. I was like, I, I, I don't know if I connect with them, but I certainly never had that moment where I was like, get this man off my screen or like <laughs> just please have the dragon eat him or something. I was like, no, I'm like, come on, Christian Bailey, you can do it. Save, save the children. Go and go with the lady from Goldeneye. And I don't know her name and I don't remember. Her character's name's Alex. That was it. Um, it's yes. The same as uh, Isabella Skorupo. Scar- yes. Skorupko? Skorupko. Yes. Isabella Skorupko. Um, and uh, go with, go with Alex and, Stop the dragon. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It was, it's, yeah, I, I never had that moment where I didn't like anybody. I just, I just kind of rolled with it and just kind of sunk into the lukewarm hot tub that is this movie. <laughs> oh, I don't expect this movie to win any Oscars whatsoever. I think <laughs> no. what's weird for me is about like the idea of the legacy of this film. It appears to have an, still an incredibly active Reddit following. Mm. Like people want to talk about this movie all the time. Um, there is a huge underground custom action figure market what? where people like modify action figures and like resell them to each other. The Van one is something else, let me tell you. Um, but and it got a video game, and the video yes. game you can play as the humans or as the dragon, mm. which is like kind of a fun idea. Um, but it, it didn't get any sequels, and it was one of those things like we've talked about this with Tron, where like it didn't make a, the money that they thought it should make, but it didn't totally tank yeah. either. Yeah. Like I think yeah. it made what like it's money, it's money back in like mm. you know more. Yeah. But it's still the age of the blockbuster, where unless you're making like three times as much, it's an abject failure, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I also think that that's the tone thing, where like this is not this is weirdly is a PG movie, which I don't quite understand because you're watching yeah. a million dudes get roasted uh, and it's very <laughs> dour, but. uh it's not for families. Like, I don't think a kid would have much uh, fun with this. Uh, no, so, yeah. it, it's not fun. It's not fun at all in that sense. It's, there's no, it's not like a, like, uh, it's not Marvel-y in that way mm. where people are quipping and they're having fun. I was like, everyone in this movie is miserable. Yes. They're miserable from get from minute one. And except for when they're doing their little, like, Star Wars play. The Black Knight stares through the holes in his shiny mask. And he speaks words that burn into our hero's heart forever. I am your father. Everyone else during the movie is just ready to, they all look like they just want to lie on the floor and give up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Except for Christian Bale and maybe Gerard Butler, but everyone else is just like rough. And Mm -hmm. yeah, the tone is 
I was I was fascinated the whole time by the tone of this movie. This is a movie that was in development, I think, for two decades. I think it showed up for them in the or like it showed up from studio to studio in the in the late eighties, mm. um, where obviously this would have been stop motion. Um, it was written by two originally by two screenwriters from Wisconsin who did nothing else. Mm-hmm. They just showed up. Were like, here is a spec script, and then I guess just disappeared. That's the Hollywood game. Um, but it was one of those things that people liked the pitch, like producers liked the idea of the pitch of it's like, oh, it's dragons in, originally it was like a futuristic world where like it was like lasers and whatever. And it was like dragons versus the future. Um, And then that's got revised and revised and revised. And then it gets into the hands of Richard Zanuck. And if people aren't familiar with that name, you probably recognize the Zanuck name because it is a generational producer name. But Richard Zanuck specifically is known for being the guy who took over Fox from his father and started greenlighting some of the biggest films of our time, including Jaws. He greenlit The French Connection. Like, he's very much part of that, like, 70s renaissance. So he was already known for really pushing these films and making sure they stayed on budget. Like, he's got a great uh, a great quote um, when Jaws started to go over budget and he was keeping all the executives at bay and he says, I said to Universal, if I see one Learjet land at Martha's Vineyard, I'll stop production. I'm not a bully, but I will act quickly and ruthlessly so they know it when I say no Learjets and I mean it. <laughs> so like, Can you work on my there. jobs? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So he's really there to make sure like the movies are being made Exactly as they, like every dollar you're seeing on screen, like there's not a lot of extra stuff. Um, And so when he gets a hold of this, the budget is like comparatively low. Like I think this is like 20, 30 million, like Mm -hmm. really small for what they're doing. And they give it to Rob Bowman. And at the time, Rob Bowman was known for the Mm X-Files. So he directed the X-Files movies and he directed a bunch of like the high profile X-Files stuff. But that makes sense because he's someone who can do spectacle on a budget. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when you're seeing this, like even though it it wouldn't seem like it, there's actually a lot of X-Files influence here. Yeah, and I think also people forget, I mean, also, (laughs) number one, the sad thing is people forget the X-Files because we're (laughs) old. Uh, But number two, I... Well, and when the X-Files was good, like, that's the thing, is it just had such a sharp drop-off. Everyone's like, oh, the X-Files. And also, but I think people forget that Fight the Future movie, which was actually pretty huge. It has, like, the Oklahoma City bombing recreation and, like, weird spaceships and stuff. So it's... Not too far off. And plus, uh, very procedural, right? Which is, this is very much like, uh, you could say the McConaughey and Bale are the Mulder and Scully of dragon fighting, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> uh, they, like, yeah, it's a, it's an odd, I, I do think that there's a lot of through line. And, of course, I, I think people are probably like, who's Rob Bowman? And, unfortunately, he immediately went from this to Electra and then went to director jail and now just does TV. So, uh, yeah. But I, I think he, you're right. He does a great job. And it's... Pretty amazing. Also, it's kind of interesting that Zanuck, after this, pretty much exclusively goes to Tim Burton and then just kind of finishes off his life and career producing a bunch of Tim Burton movies. So I don't know what was happening. Yeah, there's, there's, this is a movie that uh, as soon as, as soon as you started going through the credits, it's, it's fascinating. I was looking at the cinematographer, um, did Aliens, did V for Vendetta, mm. did all these like others. I was like, what? And I'm just going through it. I'm like, it's really, it has like a really interesting pedigree to it. And like, mm. the thing is also too, is that I'm like, I'm watching, I'm like, it's a lot of like good actors. This yeah. is not like a low budget thing where you're like, 
oh, we've hired everyone based on like who would get nude kind of thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Or like, you know, or like, oh, and I guess this guy is available. He hasn't had a movie in a while. Like Dana Carvey, what you up to kind of thing. But I don't know what Dana Carvey's Carvey, up to. Maybe, what you up to? Maybe, he's, <laughs> maybe he's busy. I don't know. But uh, I think what's wild to me is that Christian Bale was the wild card. Like as Cam mentioned, like he wasn't a draw and they didn't want him. Originally, the studios were like, you know, we'll just get Sly or we'll get Arnold in mm-hmm. here. We'll make it a proper action movie. But Bowman, because this is what Bowman does, he was like, no, then I know who's going to survive. And mm-hmm. I want the audience guessing till the very end of who's going to die. And if you're casting a bunch of great actors who people are kind of familiar with, you don't know who's going to live. And I, I think that it works in this. Like you do have that feeling of like, like I didn't see McConaughey biting it at the end and he does and he does it spectacularly. It's great. Spoilers for the 2002 movie yeah, Rain of Fire. Yeah. I, also, I, I will say with the worry about the spoilers, I believe in the trailer you saw him jumping into the dragon's mouth with axes. It was just, maybe he survives. I don't know. Oh, um, maybe he just doesn't. Yeah. But yeah, it's, and it is interesting to see everyone in this point in their career because this is, uh, when you hear Christian Bale talk, he, he is starting up his wheels on like, I want to do crazy stuff because he says he kind took it because he's like I specifically like to take a script where people go no Christian don't do this script which I I found kind of charming because he's like they were like it must have been very hard with no dragon he's like yeah no shit that's why I thought it would be weird and fun and and also McConaughey like as much as you guys are like this is unhinged it's unhinged in a very I think toned down like like uh, realistic way like this this is him playing a very realistically crazy person and I kind of wish it had a little more of that uh, you know magic Mike spice like Oh my god! I want a little you more. Want more camp factor? Yeah, I want him kind of. I, I feel the same way about. I don't know if either of you have seen. I mean, what am I saying? You both love garbage movies. Have you seen uh, <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The New Generation with him? And uh, and it's like I actually haven't seen uh, that. Well, oh, with and Renee Zellweger's in it yeah, too. Yeah, throw, oh throw it on. It's among their first movies, <laughs> and and you kind of with both of them, you're like, damn. If it just just had a little more confidence to be Renee Zellweger and a little more confidence to be Matthew McConaughey, this would be so much better. But It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) This is also a movie, too, where this is two actors that, like, really, really like to transform their bodies. Mm. Getting that first taste of, like, really going for something. Like, because we're also right before The Machinist and, like, we're we're not even in Christian Bale Batman, right? So Mm -hmm. he apparently, when Matthew McConaughey showed up jacked to shit on set, Christian Bale apparently made him, like, decided to take his body the other direction. Mm. He showed up, like, super frail and gaunt. And uh, he was like, oh, I wouldn't be able to fight him if I'm like this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not like, actually a foil. So like he had to bird. put some weight on. Yeah. Exactly. He had to put some weight on. So he's like, I need to be able to make this realistic. But I think one of the neatest things I saw is that this is like a representation of fight versus flight. Like, what would you do in an apocalypse, mm. right? You either, like, hunker down and wait for it to pass and then everything kind of gets some semblance of normalcy or you fight for the status quo back again, right? And then what happens in between the two of those? And it's a, it's a very interesting movie. I like it a lot. Sure, I, don't know, sure. I don't know if you can sure. tell. It's, I like it a lot. It's a movie that, that like, I as I'm watching it, I'm like, my brain starts, the wheels start turning and I'm like, wait a second. And I'm like, Alex, don't, don't think too hard. <laughs> like at the start, just let it happen. At the start when like all of the, when that dragon like just annihilates their crops and then it never comes back up. They're never like, damn, our crops are all just mm. like, well, 
Yeah. <laughs> like, was that your food? Uh, Don't you need that? They've been pickling and canning, Alex. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, one thing I think that we ought to focus on too is the that the dragons are really good and really do hold up. There we and go. look yeah. amazing. Since yeah, this whole thing is about the CGI, and yeah, and I think it's very interesting when you hear. I, I I'm curious to know if it's just braggadocio, but I know Rob Bowman also at least claims that they came up with the idea that a dragon is like spitting chemicals which turn into fire which now they're like Game of Thrones has that all this stuff has that Harry Potter yeah and it, they're actually using the models all of them are using the original models from Reign of Fire yeah. so this is the yeah so it, it has become the standard for it and they're using um, actual biology from the bombardier beetle where mm. apparently mm. that's what it does it has two chemicals that go together that are combust- combustible um, but I think these dragons look amazing but it's wild in the reviews at the time they're like oh the dragons suck like sure. it's so unbelievable and I was like they look I mean, great. The, the <laughs> like, thing I think that is that is good is like maybe maybe they aren't they can be rough around the edges, but they're shot. I think both of these movies do a very good job of like shooting around the weakness in their effects, and mm-hmm. I, and this one especially is like you're usually up in the face of the person fighting the dragon, and the dragon's kind of in the background or out of focus. I'm I'm not surprised I didn't dig into like the cinematographer Alex, but what you're describing is like yeah, you probably had a pretty good cinematographer who knew what they were doing, uh, and you hear Rob Bowman talk about like yeah, we knew we couldn't just have the dragon hanging out. That's the smartest thing is just to have those moments where like you pull the dragon, you feel the threat. The Mm -hmm. dragon feels huge and is huge and is there like blasting everybody in the face with chemicals and fire and all this shit. But like it, there isn't like this moment where like they really linger on the dragon and you're like, Ooh man, those lighting effects, they are subpar. You're just like, Oh man, this thing's going to like, blow everything up in a moment mm. it always feels heavy too always these things yeah he did a good job with weight on the animation oh for sure yeah they seem huge and scary and i think that that's true there I, I when we were talking about the crunch and the shitty deadlines and stuff that's part of the reason why this era of social effects feels interesting because it was still innovating so like i think you're seeing kind of an innovative idea here. I know they always talk about like the trolls in Lord of the Rings. You see those guys in like a hundred movies and like the Cloverfield armature is also like, there's been a thousand Cloverfield because somebody bothered to make Cloverfield. So yeah, it's always interesting to go back to these movies where I think they probably just had the time and care because it's a smaller movie and then, and, and, you know, they had a big producer behind it. Um, and yeah, d- does this care exist anymore at all? Who's to say? Yeah. <laughs> uh. I think it does. I think that there is, but the problem is that there's so much more CGI mm. required in movies yeah. now. So you no longer, it's no longer like minor replacements, background stuff, cleanups. And like, I think a really, another really good example from this same era is uh, Lord of the Rings and mm. looking at Gollum. Gollum still holds up. That mm. is, that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, motion tracking replacements, like lighting, rigging everything to get this character. And Gollum still looks really good, but there's so much practical work um, happening mm. in comparison to something like The Hobbit and yeah. the Hobbit trilogies, in which they're using tons more CGI and special, like, and VFX stuff. And they're working on a way tighter timeline when you like uh, the Hobbit movies are fascinating to read about they're mm. garbage to watch but they're really interesting <laughs> to read about um because they changed the laws of a sovereign nation yeah. oh my god <laughs> <Union> <laughs> busting, yeah. oh god but they 
you're working on this tiny, way shorter timeline. You they bump the movies from two to three last minute. You've got all the stuff you got to build in. There's so many changes happening. All this stuff's getting added that was never there. And now you have this movie where everything looks kind of like rubbery and sad in comparison to a movie made 20 years earlier that looks infinitely better. We also have to keep in mind that this is actors learning how to act within this CGI medium. So we're in the era of like the two towers. At that point, you know, they have like the tennis balls on sticks. There's eyeline stuff. But when you watch the background stuff of this movie, as well as for signs, they're not actually giving their actors anything to look at. There's no sight lines. And so, like Rob Bowman says in the things, he's like, okay, act scared. No, more scared. No, less scared. And then they just kind of take the take that works best for whatever it is they end up animating. But, like, they're really kind of, there's so much trust required by the actors, and the actor has to be so good that they have to be paying attention to that. And we should point out, this is the same year as Attack of the Clones. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you look at these dragons versus you look kind of at, like, the Yoda uh, (laughs) uh, lightsaber fight, you know, and it's too... Totally different worlds of CGI with very different budgets, but like which one holds up better, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, I think that is a very good place for us to move to our next movie. It's going to get spooky, and it's science coming up after the break. Hey, Cam, uh, caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Suite original content, and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content, and you appear in them as well. Uh, shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series, but I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies. I think it's also a, a great reminder that like film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into producers uh, and like how they affect things you know a producer was obsessed with an actor and that's why they're in X or Y how one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums sure Uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen these are all like important points (laughs) of film history that that get lost because frankly they're not the front facing people exactly and I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard before to the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well-curated interviews and behind-the-scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. It's wild that M. Night Shyamalan's first Hollywood movie wasn't a twisty thriller, but instead a sweet coming-of-age story set at a Catholic school about a young boy who goes looking for God after his grandfather dies. It's called Wide Awake, and it stars Rosie O'Donnell as a wisecracking nun. Although tonally it's a departure from what we now know a Shyamalan movie to be, it's treading familiar thematic territory, including fate and faith. Two very important story points that also make his third blockbuster thriller, Signs, one of the best alien movies or one of the worst, depending on how you feel about it. Cam, do you have strong feelings about Signs? Uh, You know what? I think I'm one of the people, I'm not a huge 
Shyamalan a tourist. I think nowadays the whole thing is to be like, he's one of our last great American. <laughs> and I, I like I appreciate him. He's a cool weirdo that I think should be allowed to make whatever he wants, kind of. Uh, especially since he mortgages his house to make every movie these days. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Uh, but yeah, I, I do think Signs is interesting because it's kind of this tr- inflection point of his career. I think a lot of people consider... Sixth Sense and Unbreakable to be like you know, pretty great, uh, pretty kind of unimpeachable films. Uh, and Signs is one that is maybe the first wobble for a lot of people, but also was a massive blockbuster, massive hit, uh, was huge. And uh, I think continued this kind of climb that he had where uh, Disney especially thought he could do no wrong, kind of. Uh, and then he... They, it kind of didn't work for him. Even he, I think, admits that having just total no oversight that you are the wonderkind uh, kind of <laughs> ruined his ability to make movies. Um, but I still think it's, you know, he moves his camera interestingly. It's a weird collection of actors. And this is a idiosyncratic and weird-ass movie, at the very least. Whether it works or not, you can't deny it's bizarre, right? <laughs> It's it's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. Yes. Now, Cam, why don't you give people an idea about what is it about? Why is it so weird? It, the what's not so weird is it's an alien invasion movie. It's a home invasion movie. It's a it's a pretty basic kind of thriller structure. But like you say, M. Night Shyamalan is a very interesting guy because he's very obsessed with the concept of faith and not necessarily a specific kind of faith. I think he often uses Christian faith just because he's working in America for the most part. But um He's just kind of curious about this idea. So the signs, the titular signs, are both uh, crop circles and then wondering if uh, things are a sign from God because you're following a man uh, played, unfortunately, by Mel Gibson. Uh, but it's sad, Mel Gibson, so it's a little easier to consume. Uh, <laughs> he, oh, God. A, a sad farmer uh, who is taking care of his two young children after the death of his wife, uh, played by Rory Culkin and Abigail Breslin, and his brother lives with them as well, Joaquin Phoenix. They have these weird crop circles suddenly appear, um, and slowly it starts to seem more and more like uh, aliens are on Earth, they might be invading. Uh, Mel Gibson is very much trying to kind of lock down and keep normalcy, which I feel like is another weird Shyamalan thing. He loves a supernatural situation where everyone is trying to ignore it and and resume some sort of normalcy. But eventually it all starts to fall apart as aliens... uh, seemingly begin to invade Earth and uh, start messing with their homestead. And uh, it all comes down to, you know, are all these things uh, unrelated or is it fate? Or did God set up this entire alien invasion to uh, bring a man back to his faith and the cloth? Oh, God. Now, Alex, you have strong feelings about this. Now, watching this uh, in 2023, which is when we are recording this episode, you saw this originally, too, in like around 2002. I think I saw it almost exactly like 20 years ago. Mm. So I had okay. I had basically like just faint memories of it. Now, what for you holds up still, do you think, as a filmmaker works? And then what for you is like, okay, this is a weird choice that we wouldn't do now. There, there's a there's an interesting concept there. In a, in a weird way, when I think about the plot of this movie, I kind of almost want like a weird, unsettling, like A24 redo of mm. this about a man trapped in a house with like his weird spooky children, um, <laughs> and and uh, as he loves as, prophetic children, dish Simon. Yeah, that's one of his many calling I, cards. Yeah. I I have a lot of I don't I don't like how he directs kids. Every time the kids are on the screen, I was like, 
sir, would it would it kill you to tell these kids to have some emotion? I would love it. <laughs> Please, anything. Um, but I think that there's a really interesting concept there. But the thing is that we're this movie's made at a time when we're we're doing these big blockbusters, and there's this sort of I don't want to say pedestrian, but there's this, I can say pedestrian now, but at the time, this very sort of like mainstream kind of appeal to it. Mm. You're making this movie that is, I mean, we're, we're, we're just coming out of 9-11. We're in this weird sort of headspace. So it needs to be both appealing to that kind of like collective trauma, I think North America was doing, but also having like this hopeful ending. And it's, I don't know, there's, it's, there's a blandness to it mm. that I think I did not enjoy. I, I have to admit, this is not a movie that I'm a fan of, but I think there's some, there's like all these interesting moments in the way that he films it. There's so many shots at the top where everyone's center framed. Mm. And I kept it trying to sort of figure out like, why? Like, is there a reason for this? And I think he just think thinks it looks good. So I'm like, in the hands of a more interesting filmmaker, this movie could be fascinating and just bizarre and like just really out there in like a bow is afraid kind of way. Mm. Whereas in, I think, I think M night has M night. Do I call him M night? People seem to call him night is the interesting thing. Yeah. I, th I think that he has interesting ideas, but he's not a very adventurous filmmaker. So everything feels kind of like, you know, it's like you, it's, it's the, it's the battlefield earth thing where it's like the filmmaker knows that like Dutch angles are interesting, but he doesn't know why anyone uses them. It's like, he knows that like the shots and everything are interesting, but he doesn't, it doesn't serve the story. Mm. We did an episode uh, recently for 1991 on dead again. And we're talking about um, how, and in that Alicia Fletcher brings up how Ken Branagh as a filmmaker uh, in his early years was trying to leave a legacy. Like he was trying to be like, okay, now I'm making my Hitchcock movie. Now I'm going to make my Altman movie. Now I'm, you know, like making <laughs> sure make that he Thor was movie. exactly. I'm going to write. I'm going to write Belfast, which is literally like note for note what the Oscars vote for. Like he's very, he's very aware of his cinematic legacy. And I feel like M Night Shyamalan has the same thing going on. He calls this his nod to the birds. You know, mm -hmm. and he'd already had this this mega hit, and then he did his comic book movie, and then this is his Hitchcock movie. You know, and then, yeah. it, but I, but I'm also like, I don't, I think he knows he didn't get this right because the happening is also kind of a Hitchcock movie. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I also think he's like more one to one challenging himself. Like looking through a lot of the interviews, he specifically is also talking about how he wanted this to be like a more emotional film uh, because he was criticized at the time through Unbreakable and Sixth Sense for not for being a little cold and he said that actually because uh, his early films were kind of criticized for being like treacly and like cloying he didn't want emotion and it's interesting now because I think now he's just this kind of like weird unabashed way over the top emotional guy so I think that you're seeing some kind of play here that doesn't quite work and same with he this movie is quite goofy I think and and self-consciously goofy at a lot of times and I think that he says that he wanted that too like he found unbreakable to be like a very dour movie and he kind of thought thought it was a failure because he's like why why would anyone enjoy watching this this, this movie is so <laughs> grim he talks about like there, there was some scene where they were all like 
quietly eating dinner at a Denny's or something at a breaker bowl, and he's like, "Oh God, this is death." So yeah, he. So there's jokes. There's these weird moments. I super love. Uh, like I think we can all agree that when uh, Joaquin Phoenix is thinking about joining the military, that weird man <laughs> from the military isn't that Michael, is Sh- so Michael Showalter. Good. Oh well, Michael Showalter is mocking yeah. him. Yes. but I mean the yeah. the weird military guy. Oh yeah, the, the grin, yes. the most rectangle head I've ever seen on a human <laughs> yes. being. In like between that and the scene where Joaquin Phoenix is talking about like, do you believe in like? Is like I don't know, like miracles or whatever, and he like mm. like he talks about that that woman who almost threw up in his mouth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I turn, take out the gum, stuff in a paper cup next to the sofa, and turn around. Randa McKinney throws up all over herself. I knew the second it happened, it was a miracle. I could have been kissing her when she threw up. That would have scarred me for life. The one moment I actually laughed yeah. and was like, "What?" I love, I love that scene. Yes. I think that scene is so weird. Right? I thought the tinfoil hats were funny. I like the tinfoil sure? hats and them just sitting there. Cherry Jones roasting him about it was a man, <laughs> a woman can't go that fast. And she's like, "Well, some <laughs> Swedish like there is always a weird aside, but they do kind of work." I don't know. Like the the tone doesn't quite match, but those individual scenes can be quite charming in their own way. And that's where kind of I come back to that feeling of like in in the hands of a more like weird filmmaker Mm -hmm. this movie could could be really really interesting like i think feel like there's all these like weird little like wes andersy moments in this movie like the framing and the weird little like like character beats and everything that i'm like if this was played like odder if people Mm. sort of knew this movie was weird then like this could be like almost kind of like a very dark like comedy at points, but it's just, it's again, there's this, there's this very um, middling energy to everything. There's some weird things that are brought up to in international reviews that I didn't even think about. Like these may be the only American farmers with no guns. Yeah. I mean, I do. I also wonder, it's kind of weird. I, I never got the full impression of like, they have a lot of corn, so they've got to be yeah. farmers, but they otherwise just seem like they are guys who live in a farmhouse <laughs> outside of town uh, rather than being farmers themselves. Because, yeah, you don't. It, Joaquin isn't like, I came to help with the farm. It's also a very interesting script because you're thrown, it's like deeply, uh, not in media res, but like it, just the action starts immediately. The whole thing is wacky where they like, <laughs> away, wake up, everybody was asleep. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a very, a very odd movie. You're right. And I do think that he... M. Night found, and I don't, I, the weird thing is, is I, I do feel like I, Sixth Sense is probably his best movie. There's no way. So yeah. when he was trying to be mainstream, I do think he made some of his best work. But I do think he found a freedom in being more of like a freak weirdo, just being like, screw you guys, I do what I want. Uh, and if I fail, and, and and you do see, I think, the weird tone work a bit better in something like, even though I didn't love the movie Knock at the Cabin, I do think he settles on a bizarre tone that you can be like, that's Undeniably, uh, the same tone throughout. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I think the I think yeah. the visit is actually pretty pretty sure. good. Like as his like return one, where it's like he knows exactly what movie he's making. He knows what his audience is. It's going to be PG thirteen and sure. a bunch of teenagers that are like going to be freaked out by a like uh, urban legendy sort of movie. And I think it it works really really mm. well. Yeah. And he's and he's never good at jokes. <laughs> That's, uh, what's the no. the rapper in old is called mid-sized sedan or something? It's like nice. What? Okay, I, I get what you're trying to do. 
It's a uh, beach that makes you old. Yeah. What more do you want? Oh my lord! Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, he's it's, he's a weird dad that likes to make movies. I don't know. There's something I find charming about it, and this one I think because it's yeah, and and the faith thing is like dumb, but I'm kind of charmed by it because it so wholeheartedly is like every dumb thing did happen for a reason, and they're all going to come together at the end, and. Uh, as as much as I can absolutely agree that that is stupid, I find it charming. <laughs> I mean, you're not the only one. The reviews just hammer this for that ending. Like, mm. everyone praises... Interestingly, everybody praises the kids. Everybody is like, he's the greatest director of children of our time. Wow. Um, but I think that's also I because... I do not agree. <laughs> well, I think both <laughs> those kids we have now seen have grown up to be incredible actors yes. in their own sure, rights, and they sure. were great in many things. Um, so, and, and as Cam will back me up on, there is always an element of the kid just being really good at... Being being a kid naturally and being able to yeah. repeat stuff that like is just the luck of casting sure. sometimes. Yeah, and actually they'd say a, a very interesting, it's like a kind of throwaway scene, but I, I watching some of the behind the scenes, they're all saying that Abigail Breslin's ability to cry was like supernatural, which is not something you think of, but like, yeah, I guess a kid that little being able to cry like an actor is pretty wild. So it's always fascinating. The other thing is like when people are good with kids is like they're good with, uh, they said that they were shooting, uh, the, the entire pantry scene with Mel Gibson, they would shoot that every evening over like four or five weeks because you lose the kids, right? Like the kids are like a five hour day. So it was mm-hmm. very fascinating where he's like, we would essentially do that. And then we'd be like, okay, see ya. And like drive to the pantry set and then do like <laughs> one shot of the pantry. So that was kind of fascinating because he's like, the fact that that works at all is you know, credit to like the the cameras and Mel Gibson because it was shot just spread out forever. Now, you both brought up a really interesting point in that this is the first movie that came back uh, to shooting after um, 9-11 happened. That It was in the process of shooting. And then, of course, everything got shut down because nobody mm. knew what was happening or whatever's going to happen again. This is the first movie to, to start shooting again, uh, partially because it was shooting on location in Philadelphia. And they were like, we're far enough from anything that could happen. We'll mm. just do it here. <laughs> And supposedly this was written beforehand, but I think part of its success is the fact that there are so many parallels to a 9-11 style survival thing. Like mm. uh, people point to the line, uh, Bo's line of, Baby, why don't you just change the channel on the television? I did. And? Same shows on every station. That that probably like really rang for a lot of people of like just someone trying to hunker down and protect their family from this overwhelming exterior threat. Well, I think also, too, the fascinating thing when it comes to that is that, like, so there's a, there's a distinct shift in media, and I include, like, music and uh, TV shows and everything, post 9-11 in tone, in ways, like, with the way we talk about things. But an interesting, interesting thing, but an interesting thing in movies is that you go from, prior to this, we go from this, like, big blockbusters, explosions, Armageddon, it's Independence Day, we're going to blow up everything, to there's a, there's a distaste for it. We're not, at least in, like, in North American uh, media. Um, and you can compare this movie to, like, something like the 2005 War of the Worlds, yeah. where yes. that destruction comes back. And, like, you can talk about... Um, signs as like an allegory for like a man finding his faith again and about the Christianity aspects and all of that. But also I think it's really, really interesting that you never really see any destruction. It's an mm. alien invasion movie where you don't see any, you barely see the ships. They're mm. like little dots on the screen. You never see like a building get blown up. You'd never see them like kill someone or do like that. It's just like everything's like you still, you see them, 
But so much of the damage is just sort of like said, like people died and you're like, oh my God. Like, so I think it was still very much at a stage where you, you weren't going to show all this stuff, even if they had planned it. And then, yeah. And then I think if you, if you look at sort of like where the collective psyche was looking at War of the Worlds 2000, I I think it was 2005. That is a a really interesting follow-up to that sort of alien invasion movie. And that one really was considered the first uh, film that like confidently depicted 9-11 style destruction so yeah mm-hmm. they, there is this interesting gap and I think you're right and actually uh, an interesting thing again I think we're all we all have a somewhat of a background of like theater kid <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, a funny thing a funny thing that uh not funny but M. Night like admitted kind of because I think he's number one theater kid uh for better or worse <laughs> they purposefully shot the flashback to his wife's death first, be partially to kind of use. And, and he said that like the first day of shooting, they like did a candlelit vigil for the victims of 9-11 and then went into the shooting. And I think that you do that weight. That is a very good scene. I mean, it's mostly Cherry Jones uh, talking to Mel Gibson, but I think you do feel that weird 9-11 vibe there. Uh, and that, then it was smart of him to be like, hey, we have a <laughs> grim, dark, uh, sad, like collective sadness scene. Let's try to use that feeling. And then by the time we're having goofy fun swinging baseball bats, we'll, maybe we'll feel a little better. But I also think you need to look at the box office for this year. So one, two, and three, all franchise. Spider-Man, mm-hmm. Star Wars 2, and Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. One, two, three. Number four, Signs. Number five, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Right. So like these are, which we will be talking about in a later episode. um, But these are like kind of all weirdly comfort Mm. movies. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And then Lord of the Rings Two Towers comes after all that at number six. Right. Mm. But these are all movies that I think you can be like, this is what at least North America wanted to see on their screens is like feel good movie about a lady and her goofy family. uh, Comfort coming back to franchises and characters we know and love. And we're going to watch Good Triumph Over Evil. And then, you know, this movie about someone protecting their family from an outside force. Like, I'm not a psychiatrist here. (laughs) I'm just saying, perhaps there are some things that we wanted to see on our screens at that time. Sure. I also think too it's it's interesting that like it's very it's very general in a sense as well. Like a lot like there we again, post 9-11 media, if there's it's almost like everyone was kind of afraid to like for years and years to like really touch on it. And even then it took a while to like even really build to it. And then I think we just kind of skipped over it. And now we're all like shit posting because it's like, we all came of age and we all were all like internet poisoned. But, um, um, I, there's, yeah, I think that there's this like weird generality to it that, gets depicted and like the everything's just sort of coded and mm. we don't talk about it unless you're like extremely loud and incredibly close. Yeah. <laughs> or what's that movie where, yeah. where, where it's, what's the movie with Robert Pattinson where he's in the oh, building? Remember and it, like, me. Remember <laughs> <boy>. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's interesting. And I mean, also it's, it's a real, I think tip of the cap to how different this movie movie and a lot of M night's movies are to other blockbusters is I think a lot of 2002, you were dealing with films that were written and shot potentially before 9-11 but the fact like the fact that this came out in 2002 and was shot after 9-11 is wild and that's also like a tip of the cap to the fact that it's just a couple of goopy aliens you see for five minutes here and there uh running around uh and and that he is he still has the spirit of kind of an independent filmmaker that they were able to turn something around that quick 
So it probably felt pretty unusual compared to the movies that were hastily CGIing out the Twin Towers from there. (laughs) Spider-Man, we know, had a trailer with the Twin Towers. So, like, that was this year. Now, as we uh, wind up, we, of course, need to talk about the aliens and uh are they successful or does that is or does that make the rewatchability here challenging i do not like the design <laughs> i think they work fine mm-hmm. from a distance everyone yeah. talks about the there's there there's the there's the jump scare in the movie the, the scare, jump scare is great the brazilian party scene and the jump scare is good and i think that that works because it's blurry it's there's this tension that builds and when you see it it's like you're trying to figure out what it is for a moment. Just looks like a weird spooky man. Mm-hmm. Well, and the Joaquin oh, yeah. Phoenix reaction is so good. Yeah. Like he, yeah. when he backs all the way up into the closet <laughs> and he's freaking, you're like, yes, that. Yeah. But it's funny because yeah, like once at the, the end scene where you actually like see the alien, I was mm. like, Ooh, this, I, I'm not taking it seriously anymore. Yeah. Um, I wish they hadn't really shown it as much. And it's, I just want to make one note about the scares in this movie. The, the jump scare is good. Um, there are some like moments of like high tension, but the thing that I found unsettling that is something that you're not going to get in a movie anymore is the in the scene when uh, Mel Gibson goes to the vet the vet's place and he like goes and he he can hear the sound of the phone off the hook mm, and you hear sure. that like that sound and I'm like you don't get that anymore that's no. a sound that doesn't it doesn't exist anymore. Um, in the context of like, well, I mean, like no one has home phones, you have cell phones, mm-hmm. even if you drop it on the ground, you don't get dial tones. Yeah. So I was like, and like, and it like awoke something in me, this like, this unsettled feeling that I hadn't had in a long time of like, coming across a phone in the house, been knocked off the hook and having that like weird spooky moment of like, what did I do this? Did someone else do this? Like, oh, did the dog do this? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of little, like, anachronistic things in this movie that I I found really interesting to watch for because mm-hmm. I'm like, this is a world that's gone now. The soundscape as well is incredible yeah. in this. And he started with the sound design and the sound design in this, I think, is amazing. Even, like, the... We talked about, you know, this, this very small filmmaking with, like, no big things when the dog is barking outside and then all of a sudden the dog goes quiet and he's literally zooming in on a wall mm. while this, like, <laughs> audio play is happening. And you're like... This is wild. Like how, when, yeah. we, we don't do this. This is crazy. Yeah. There, there's a very funny. I highly recommend uh, people go watch the making of. There's a very funny bit with him and James Newton Howard, and M Night. M Night basically, and I think M Night's worked with James Newton Howard and continue, and they they have a good relationship. But he admits that he's essentially like every movie. He's like, all right, baby, this is my Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No music, no music. And then, <laughs> and then every movie, he like comes to James Newton Howard, be like, uh, excuse me, sir. <laughs> You, you, so, and this one he said he got him to make a theme and he's like but he's like no no i've nailed it i've got it baby no music no music and then yeah he said really last minute he's like can you expand on this theme to fill an entire movie's worth of music <laughs> and, and yeah so so i do think he is thinking not about the score he is thinking about the soundscape a lot more he said he uh, there's great quotes about how obsessed he was with those wind chimes he's like i must have oh, done God. 200 different wind chimes uh, <laughs> but uh but yeah so it, it is very funny and I do, yeah, I do hope someday he gets to make his Texas Chainsaw Massacre with no oh music at all. Uh, uh, just to come bring us back to 
just quickly to the aliens, though. Uh, I think what happened there, and like when you watch the making of documentary, which I actually, if you're interested, I do recommend watching because you can see the sketches of what the aliens were supposed to look like. Mm. And they're cool. Like, it's yeah. an amazing creature design. And I think where things got lost in translation is that he just wanted too many things. He's like, to make them scary. So he was like, mm. okay, well, they have this very feminine aspect to them. So originally they had everything yeah. modeled on like these dancer bodies. And you see these, these like very fluid looking <laughs> aliens. And he's like, okay, not scary. Now let's let's yeah. bring it back. Let's make it more menacing. And then he's like, oh, now their skin changes color and they're like chameleons, but then you couldn't see them. So they kind of like, it's kind of an amalgamation of all those things. So it doesn't actually end up being yeah. specific and scary like the xenomorph, right? Where the xenomorph that. is like distinct. I get the vibe that this might have been a crunch thing because it was also I think that they were shooting while somebody was designing the aliens and yeah like you say you see these multiple rejected aliens and then even the final like you were talking about Alex it's shot in a way where it's kind of covered in shadow but then also I swear it's blurry but it's like, like kind of nonsensically out of focus in a way that I'm like, yeah, they probably, again, they're shooting in September, releasing in July. God bless them for making an alien at all, I guess. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Just a guy in a rubber suit. It <laughs> yeah. should have been a guy in a rubber suit. This yeah. is one point where I'm it like, I wish it had been, been yeah. a practical. And they loved yeah. uh, the, the claw that Mel, Mel Gibson attacks. And then uh, they, they said it's the same claw that's ho- holding Rory Culkin at the end. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> Yeah, they just chop some fingers off the claw. It's one asshole alien keeps showing up. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. One guy. Get him out of here. I will say M. Knight described him as he wanted him to act like a crackhead that broke into your house, which I oh enjoy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it kind of oh does. Boy. I agree. I think that's exactly the place where we need to end this episode. Thank you, Cameron Maitland. All right. So thank you, Cameron Maitland, for doing the show once again. Yeah, uh, thank you. I will also just say shout out because I always shout out when people claim this was inspired by the script. Uh, Night Skies, the rejected E.T. proposal that, of course, Kathleen uh, Kennedy and Frank Marshall would have had their hands on. People always talk about it was an alien home invasion did M. Night get to look at it and steal some ideas? Uh, join the conspiracy. Yeah. Well, Night's guys then <laughs> allegedly became poltergeist, right? That yeah, was the... I mean, yeah. it's alleged to be, have become like nine movies, but I think a lot of people think m- many parts are in signs. Interesting. Okay. Is this available to read the Night Sky script? Yeah, is it on, yeah, is you online? Can read okay. it. yeah, yeah. And I mean, none of it's exact, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's I, I'm going to get my own tinfoil hat and I'm going for it. Yeah. Uh, Alex Nersal, a pleasure having you as always. Thank you so much for Thank coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. And yeah, I just keep thinking about the fact that um, after um, Reign of Fire to bring back to the first movie, it's like right after that, I think Gerard Butler does like one movie and then he goes and does Phantom of the Opera, a movie that I I just... I just, Gerard Butler should be placed in movies like Reign of Fire. He should not be the Phantom <laughs> of the Opera. It was one of the most hilariously miscast things. And yet I also just... Just enjoy the sheer sheer trash of it. Sure. <laughs> I always swap Russell Crowe and Gerard Butler in my head. They are very similar <laughs> human beings should, who should not should. be in musicals, <laughs> but yeah. yet inevitably oh, are. No. Uh, why don't you tell people how they can find good work that you make? Oh, yes. Um, I, uh, I, if you want to check out Parkdale Haunt, a show that uh, I am the co-creator, co-writer, 
director and I also star on it makes me this makes me sound like Garth Marenghi <laughs> but that's fine um, it is a or podcast or M. Night Shyamalan perhaps. oh my god I'm in my own movie um, <laughs> I uh, um, it is a, a horror show set in Toronto and uh, you can find it at parkdellhaunt.com or you can just google parkdellhaunt and it will be on like every podcast thing um, I am also on the D&D actual play podcast Dice Shame uh, that can be found at dicehamepodcast.com or also just on like Apple Podcasts Spotify whatever um and uh aside from that i just write lots of random things you can check out my web check out my website at um alexnersal.com and occasionally i update it like once every seven or eight years when i remember uh, you're a makeup historian so a lot of your stuff on makeup is actually re- i love reading it's very interesting thank you yeah yeah i did that i do comedy writing stuff uh i do uh i do all kinds of kinds of things and uh and yeah, I'm working on a few new shows. Uh, I don't have any info about that right now, but because uh, it's also very tentative and new and fresh. But uh, hopefully, I'll have some some new stuff to uh, promote on other things. You appear on Dice Shame with uh, Harlan Guthrie, who is also on this season. So yes, uh, yes. Well, you, if you like both of these voices, we recommend you check out Dice Shame. And you can join us in two weeks, where we're going to be taking a little trip. It's Crossroads and Millennium Actress, and that's coming up with pop culture expert Sydney Urbanek. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on 4 HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Alex Nersal as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. 